I'm Robert Sheehan and this is Wild Stories, an artistic celebration and exploration of the work and life of Oscar Wilde through his fairy tales, The Happy Prince and other stories. Cried the Bengal light. In fact, you were the most affected person I ever met. You were the rudest person I ever met, said the rocket. And you cannot understand why... Keep up with the horse. At last, he lost his way and wandered off on the moor, which was a very dangerous place, as it was full of deep holes. And there, poor little Hans was drowned. His body was found in firewood and finish his play. Dear Prince, said the swallow, I cannot do that. And he began to weep. Swallow, swallow, little swallow, said the prince, do as I command you. So the swallow plucked out to see the giant coming. And the giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom. And the birds came and sang on it. And the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. In De Profundus, the text Oscar Wilde wrote towards the end of his two-year prison sentence, Wilde says, To the artist, expression is the only mode under which he can conceive life at all. To him, what is dumb is dead. In The Nightingale and the Rose, the fairy tale he published almost a decade earlier, he gives that role to the Nightingale to sing beauty into existence, regardless of the cost. She is the ultimate artist of his tales, the personification of art for art's sake, whose beautiful creation is the Blood Red Rose. In this series, Wild Stories, we've brought together artists composer Michael Gallen and visual artist Felicity Clear to reimagine Wilde through his first collection of stories. That's Michael's music you're hearing now. you can experience Felicity's animation and how they work with the music online through wildstories.ie. In our first three episodes, we've heard The Happy Prince, The Devoted Friend and The Remarkable Rocket. Stories tinged with darkness as well as beauty where Goodness is not rewarded on earth, and where characters are often deluded by the world around them. In The Nightingale and the Rose, we have a love story, it seems. The Nightingale sees the young student as a true lover. What I sing of, she says, he suffers. What is joy to me, to him is pain. Surely love is a wonderful thing. But let's hear Oscar Wilde's words and the story. The Nightingale and the Rose, read for us by Lauren Coe.
The Nightingale and the Rose by Oscar Wilde. She said that she would dance with me if I brought her red roses, cried the young student. But in all my garden there is no red rose. From her nest in the home oak tree the nightingale heard him, and she looked out through the leaves and wondered. No red rose in all my garden, he cried, and his beautiful eyes filled with tears. Oh, on what little things does happiness depend? I have read all that the wise men have written, and all the secrets of philosophy are mine. Yet for want of a red rose is my life made wretched. Here, at last, is a true lover, said the nightingale. Night after night have I sung of him, though I knew him not. Night after night have I told his story to the stars, and now I see him. His hair is dark as the hyacinth blossom, and his lips are red as the rose of his desire. But passion has made his face like pale ivory, and sorrow has set her seal upon his brow. The prince gives a ball tomorrow night, murmured the young student, and my love will be of the company. If I bring her a red rose, she will dance with me till dawn. If I bring her a red rose, I shall hold her in my arms, and she will lean her head upon my shoulder, and her hand will be clasped in mine. But there is no red rose in my garden, so I shall sit lonely, and she will pass me by. She will have no heed of me, and my heart will break. Here, indeed, is the true lover, said the nightingale. What I sing of... He suffers. What is joy to me, to him, is pain. Surely love is a wonderful thing. It is more precious than emeralds and dearer than fine opals. Pearls and pomegranates cannot buy it, nor is it set forth in the marketplace. It may not be purchased of the merchants, nor can it be weighed out in the balance for gold. The musicians will sit in their gallery, said the young student, and play upon their stringed instruments, and my love will dance to the sound of the harp and the violin. She will dance so lightly that her feet will not touch the floor, and the courtiers in their gay dresses will throng round her. But with me she will not dance, for I have no red rose to give her. And he flung himself down on the grass, and buried his face in his hands, and wept. Why is he weeping? asked a little green lizard as he ran past him with his tail in the air. Why, indeed, said a butterfly, who was fluttering about after a sunbeam. Why, indeed, whispered a daisy to his neighbour in a soft, low voice. He is weeping for a red rose, said the nightingale. For a red rose, they cried. How very ridiculous. And the little lizard, who was something of a cynic, laughed outright. But the nightingale understood the secret of the student's sorrow, and she sat silent in the oak tree and thought about the mystery of love. Suddenly, she spread her brown wings for flight and soared into the air. She passed through the grove like a shadow, and like a shadow she sailed across the garden. In the centre of the grass plot was standing a beautiful rose tree, and when she saw it she flew over to it and lit upon a spray. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are white, it answered, as white as the foam of the sea and whiter than the snow upon the mountain. But go to my brother who grows round the old sundial and perhaps 
He will give you what you want. So the nightingale flew over to the rose tree that was growing round the old sundial. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are yellow, it answered, as yellow as the hair of the mermaiden who sits upon an amber throne, and yellower than the daffodil that blooms in the meadow before the mower comes with his scythe. But go to my brother who grows beneath the student's window, and perhaps he will give you what you want. So the nightingale flew over to the rose tree that was growing beneath the student's window. Give me a red rose, she cried, and I will sing you my sweetest song. But the tree shook its head. My roses are red, it answered, as red as the feet of the dove, and redder than the great fans of coral that wave and wave in the ocean cavern. But the winter has chilled my veins, and the frost has nipped my buds, and the storm has broken my branches, and I shall have no roses at all this year. One red rose is all I want, cried the nightingale. Only one red rose. Is there no way by which I can get it? There is a way, answered the tree, but it is so terrible that I dare not tell it to you. Tell it to me, said the nightingale. I am not afraid. If you want a red rose, said the tree, you must build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with your own heart's blood. You must sing to me with your breast against a thorn. All night long you must sing to me and the thorn must pierce your heart and your lifeblood must flow into my veins and become mine. Death is a great price to pay for a red rose, cried the nightingale, and life is very dear to all. It is pleasant to sit in the green wood and to watch the sun in his chariot of gold and the moon in her chariot of pearl. Sweet is the scent of the hawthorn and sweet are the bluebells that hide in the valley and the heather that blows on the hill. Yet love is better than life. And what is the heart of a bird compared to the heart of a man? So she spread her brown wings for flight and soared into the air. She swept over the garden like a shadow, and like a shadow she sailed through the grove. The young student was still lying on the grass where she had left him, and the tears were not yet dry in his beautiful eyes. Be happy, cried the nightingale. Be happy, you shall have your red rose. I will build it out of music by moonlight and stain it with my own heart's blood. All that I ask of you in return is that you will be a true lover, for love is wiser than philosophy, though she is wise, and mightier than power, though he is mighty. Flame-coloured are his wings, and coloured like flame is his body. His lips are sweet as honey, and his breath is like frankincense. The student looked up from the grass and listened, but he could not understand what the nightingale was saying to him, for he only knew the things that are written down in books. But the oak tree understood, and felt sad, for he was very fond of the little nightingale who had built her nest in his branches. Sing me one last song, he whispered. I shall feel very lonely when you are gone. So the nightingale sang to the oak tree, and her voice was like water bubbling from a silver jar. When she had finished her song, the student got up and pulled a notebook and a lead pencil out of his pocket 
She has form, he said to himself, as he walked away through the grove. That cannot be denied to her, but has she got feeling? I am afraid not. In fact, she is like most artists. She is all style without any sincerity. She would not sacrifice herself for others. She thinks merely of music, and everybody knows that the arts are selfish. Still, it must be admitted that she has some beautiful notes in her voice. What a pity it is that they do not mean anything, or do any practical good. And went into his room, and lay down in his little pallet bed, and began to think of his love. And, after a time, he fell asleep. And when the moon shone in the heavens, the nightingale flew to the rose tree and set her breast against the thorn. All night long she sang with her breast against the thorn, and the cold crystal moon leaned down and listened. All night long she sang, and the thorn went deeper and deeper into her breast, and her lifeblood ebbed away from her. She sang first of the birth of love in the heart of a boy and a girl, and on the topmost spray of the rose tree, there blossomed a marvellous rose, petal following petal as song followed song. Pale was it at first, as the mist that hangs over the river, pale as the feet of the morning, and silver as the wings of the dawn, as the shadow of a rose in a mirror of silver, as the shadow of a rose in a water pool, so was the rose that blossomed on the topmost spray of the tree. But the tree cried to the nightingale to press closer against the thorn. Press closer, little nightingale, cried the tree, or the day will come before the rose is finished. So the nightingale pressed closer against the thorn, and louder and louder grew her song, for she sang of the birth of passion in the soul of a man and a maid. And a delicate flush of pink came into the leaves of the rose, like the flush in the face of the bridegroom when he kisses the lips of the bride. But the thorn had not yet reached her heart, so the rose's heart remained white, for only a nightingale's heart's blood can crimson the heart of a rose. And the tree cried to the nightingale to press closer against the thorn, Press closer, little nightingale, cried the tree, or the day will come before the rose is finished. So the nightingale pressed closer against the thorn, and the thorn touched her heart, and a fierce pang of pain shot through her. Bitter, bitter was the pain, and wilder and wilder grew her song, for she sang of the love that is perfected by death, of the love that dies not in the tomb. And the marvellous rose became crimson, like the rose of the eastern sky. Crimson was the girdle of petals, and crimson as a ruby was the heart. But the nightingale's voice grew fainter, and her little wings began to beat, and a film came over her eyes. Fainter and fainter grew her song, and she felt something choking her in her throat. Then she gave one last burst of music. The white moon heard it, and she forgot the dawn and lingered on in the sky. The red rose heard it, and it trembled all over with ecstasy and opened its petals to the cold morning air. Echo bore it to her purple cavern in the hills and woke the sleeping shepherds from their dreams. It floated through the reeds of the river and they carried its message to the sea. Look, look, cried the tree. The rose is finished now. But the nightingale made no answer, for she was lying dead in the long grass, 
with a thorn in her heart. And at noon, the student opened his window and looked out. Why, what a wonderful piece of luck, he cried. Here is a red rose. I have never seen any rose like it in all my life. It is so beautiful that I am sure it has a long Latin name. And he leaned down and plucked it. Then he put on his hat and ran up to the professor's house with the rose in his hand. The daughter of the professor was sitting in the doorway, winding blue silk on a reel, and her little dog was lying at her feet. He, you said that you would dance with me if I brought you a red rose, cried the student. Here is the reddest rose in all the world. You will wear it tonight next to your heart, and we will dance together and it will tell you how I love you. But the girl frowned. I am afraid it will not go with my dress, she answered. And besides, the Chamberlain's nephew has sent me some real jewels, and everybody knows that jewels cost far more than flowers. Well, upon my word, you are very ungrateful, said the student angrily, and he threw the rose into the street, where it fell into the gutter, and a cartwheel went over it. Ungrateful, said the girl. I tell you what, you are very rude, and, after all, who are you? Only a student. Why, I don't believe you have even got silver buckles to your shoes as the Chamberlain's nephew has. And she got up from her chair and went into the house. What a silly thing love is, said the student as he walked away. It is not half as useful as logic, for it does not prove anything. And it is always telling one of the things that are not going to happen and making one believe things that are not true. In fact, it is quite unpractical. And, as in this age to be practical is everything, I shall go back to philosophy and study metaphysics. So he returned to his room and pulled out a great, dusty book and began to read. The very beautiful and sad story of the Nightingale and the Rose, read by Lauren Coe. Like the swallow in The Happy Prince, the Nightingale is a force of love and Wilde, who admired the poet John Keats, makes the Nightingale the vessel of virtue, of truth, of art itself. It's a fairy tale that draws on a lot of myths. It draws on the Greek myth of Philomela about the woman who is transformed into a nightingale. It draws on Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. And Wilde was very impressed by Keats and by that particular ode. And it draws on some of Hans Christian Andersen's stories as well, because it draws on these kind of medieval legends that have been recast by people like Keats. That's Anne Markey of Trinity College, Dublin. So in one way, I think this is the most difficult of the stories because there's no redemption in it. You know, within the Christian framework, we can see redemption in the selfish giant and we can see it in the happy prince. But here, the rose ends up in the gutter and nobody picks it up. And I think it's that lack of redemption that makes it bleak. It's beautiful. 
It's beautifully written. In some places, it's written in a very flowery fashion. It's not as immediately appealing, I think, to a child as the other stories would be. And I think it exemplifies the idea that art has no function in real life because the nightingale creates the rose. That is art. And really what Wilde is saying is that art is tortuous. It can destroy the artist. So it is very much a fairy tale about aestheticism. The story's theme of love and this concept of art for art's sake, with the rose ending in the gutter, is both challenging and provoking. Yes, and it's about love as an ideal. Actually, what happens in the story is that love becomes capitalised when the nightingale talks about love. And it's this ideal love that can survive the grave, that's greater than death. It's almost as if humans are incapable of this ideal form of love. And yet he seems to be suggesting that it's the artist, the person who creates a work of art, because, you know, the nightingale's song is what creates the rose. So creating a work of art is a work of love and it's in pursuit of this ideal form of love that ordinary human love may appear very imperfect. So what should we make of this connection in Wilde's work between aesthetics and spiritualism? In The Nightingale and the Rose, the bird's sacrifice for love, for art and beauty echoes stories of saints and martyrdom, of both a sexual and a spiritual ecstasy. He's writing in a period when stigmata became much more known about and talked about. He was living in a period where the readings of the female mystics was very, very popular. Jarlis Killeen has a particular interest in the symbolism of the story. Uh, female mystics who had, in a sense, sacrificed their bodies in order to achieve a kind of ecstatic sexual union with Christ. If you think about someone like St. Catherine of Siena, she speaks about how she married Christ, not with a ring of gold, but with the ring of his foreskin. Uh, and she talked about Christ appearing to her uh, at night and entering her. And there's a famous Bernini statue of the ecstasy of St. Therese. So the sexual, the spiritual and the bodily sacrifice all being combined, the, the writing the body into this history of redemption and sacrifice would have been very appealing, I think. And, and it runs all the way through the stories where these bodies are pierced. If you, if you remember, even at the end of The Selfish Giant, we know it's Jesus because he appears with, the, with his hands and his uh, feet pierced. These are the wounds of love. So this is the, the crucified Christ that appears. It's the Christ child, but it's also the crucified Christ. And he's probably reading some of the Catholic mysticism emerging around that time. Merlin Holland, the grandson of Oscar Wilde, has a more nuanced take on Wilde's sense of religion and his use of Christian symbolism. I think that Oscar and religion, when he's at Oxford, he is deeply attracted to the Catholic Church. And he goes via Rome, where one of his fellow students has arranged for an audience with the Pope. From that moment onwards, Really, I suppose, up until uh, the time he's writing De Profundis, apart from this Christian redemptive view that one gets of some of those fairy stories, there's very little in his writing or in his correspondence which deals directly with religion. And I've always felt that it was 
rather more the uh, aesthetic side of the bells and smells when he was at Oxford. But once he is in prison and he is writing De Profundis, not without humour, it has to be said. At one point he says, I'm paraphrasing here, but the trouble with the Christian religion is that there were many Christians before Christ, but there have been very few since. <laughs> and I think in a very strange paradoxical way, he's probably quite right. Um, I like to feel that his religious views as we see them, although he expresses them in religious terms, are more those of a humanist and a man of sensitivity. The one where I think I said somewhere, uh, particularly in these stories, he is looking for beauty behind the ugliness. And I think that is one of the um, one of the great things about it. Not only does he look for beauty behind the ugliness in the stories, but in his own life towards the end, he has that greatest of gifts, which is to be able to smile, even laugh at his own misfortune. And there again, finding a certain bittersweet beauty behind the ugliness of those last years of his life. Very Irish. <laughs> For some, reading sexual symbolism into the fairy tales is unwelcome. But Wilde was writing these tales at the same time as Dorian Gray and his plays, and that duality of talking to both children and adults is central to children's literature. I think the sexuality of the stories is fairly central. Um, I know people are uncomfortable with that, but in fact, the late Victorian period was not a period when the sexual was kept out of children's literature. There's quite a lot of sexuality in children's literature that we've kind of forgotten about until we go back and look at it with an adult mind. It becomes fairly clear. Jarlis Killeen. We often misunderstand the Victorians. We think that they were... It was a period when you know, never talked about sex, and as if the Victorians didn't know how to have sex. So I think that... Sexuality was actually much more upfront, and people wouldn't have been surprised about that. Hans Christian Andersen's stories themselves are suffused with sexuality. So I think that's a, that's a very important element of the stories. If you think about even the happy prince kissing the swallow at the end, that kiss, it's a spiritual kiss. In a sense, the happy prince is Jesus. He's after being crucified, and that the swallow is a kind of holy ghost figure. So that is a Christian connection but they're kissing it's a connection of love as well and the, the moreover the swallow has given up a romance with the reed who's definitely female for a much more intense romance with this young beautiful boy who he kisses at the end and then dies a kind of a ecstatic death in sexual and religious consummation it's straightforward in the piercing of the nightingale and the production of this rose is just a kind of child and it's a very deeply erotic piercing that is carried on that story. So definitely Wilde is exploring sexuality. For composer Michael Gallen, who has written the Wild Stories Suite, inspired by Wilde in his work, this tale of the Nightingale and the Rose has become his personal favourite. So I was immediately just taken with the whole subject matter and the world of the story. It's so lush and the, the way that he describes the Nightingale song I think is one of the most beautiful descriptions of music that I've ever read in any text. So 
From fairly early on, I loved the idea of having a boy soprano sing the part of the nightingale and for there to be a choral part which would play the part of the rose tree, which throughout the, the story keeps on telling the nightingale to press closer, which is to press the thorn closer into her side. And there are these two roles that kind of develop. I also had this idea, which, as it turns out, has, has been one of my favourite things in the piece, which is that an operatic soprano voice at times merges with the boy soprano's voice and eventually sort of wins out underneath it. So you go from this extremely innocent sound to a very worldly, very violent kind of sound. At the end, the bird, initially she sings about the birth of love and the birth of passion, and then she sings of this love that only becomes manifest in death. I love that idea of the voice sort of splitting or cracking, and then there being this hugely powerful thing inside it. And in terms of the orchestration, it was so obvious from the beginning that there were certain techniques like I could, that I could use in the brass and particularly in the strings with harmonics and with this sort of tick-tock kind of theme that would come in every now and again which would really feel like it created momentum. It's about the growth of passion and this song grows to a fever pitch and all the time in the story there's this red rose that is slowly blossoming, that's slowly getting more and more colourful. And that's what I tried to do with the orchestration as well, to make it more colourful and more vibrant. And eventually there's this point of climax, but then it starts to disintegrate. And at the end, what you're left with is a question, really. I think in the same way as Oscar Wilde leaves the story quite open, I like the idea of finishing with something very simple, bringing the childish voice back again, and the voice in the end just repeats the line, be happy, be happy, you shall have your red rose. I think. There's a little bit of hope in there for me, but it was a difficult piece to write. It's a, I think it's a difficult story to understand, and I, I hope that I've managed to keep some of that complexity in the music. Composer Michael Gallen. So let's hear how that music and the voices of the soloists Rachel Croish and Evan Lawrence come together in Michael's piece, Press Closer. Thank you. 
Press Closer, the music of the Nightingale and the Rose, from Michael Gallen's Wild Stories Suite, performed and recorded with the Orti Concert Orchestra and Orti Cornanogue, with soloists Rachel Croash and Evan Lawrence. This aural and literary image of love as both the highest expression of the human soul, of the height of pleasure and of suffering, traces from the Nightingale and the Rose story to Wilde's final prison writings his letter to his lover Bousy, Lord Alfred Douglas, De Profundis. I think De Profundis is very powerful because Wilde feels alone and he's rounding on Alfred Douglas. But in a way, he's creating his own version of himself within De Profundis as well. And Markey. It was a degree of self-fashioning, of setting himself up almost like the remarkable rocket as this person who had been wonderful until he came in contact with the grubby Alfred Douglas. For Merlin Holland, The Nightingale and the Rose resonates with Wilde's own life and fate. And I think that is exactly what The Nightingale of the Rose is all about. And indeed, when Oscar comes out of prison, it now occurs to me, that his love for Bosey, he wanted to renounce completely. He realised that this young man, through his selfishness, through his hatred of his father, had brought him to this place in prison, accused of gross indecency, as it was quaintly called. And when he comes out of prison, he resists all Bosey's, young Alfred Douglas's entreaties to get back together again, come see him. And eventually, at the end of that summer in 1897, he's in a northern French seaside resort, looking only one way, which was back, of course, to the country which had condemned him and imprisoned him. And Bosey says to him, come on, let's go off to Naples for the winter. Well, I would have done the same thing. And of course, all hell breaks loose. And there's a wonderful letter he writes, and again I paraphrase, to his friend Robert Ross, when people accuse me of going back to Bosey, tell them that in this hideous Philistine world he offered me love and I can't live without love. How could I not love him? He ruined my life. Now there is exactly what you're saying. How could I not love him? He ruined my life. The nightingale presses her heart into the thorn to extract the red blood, to colour the rose. Oscar knows what he is doing is wrong, but that is his nature and that is the way he was. And so it's inevitable that he is going to suffer for what he felt and what he believed in. Sadly, I think one can only say, I can say with my other hat on, that it, he, he suffered, but he made my father, my uncle and my grandmother suffer along with him. I wonder what he thinks about that. 
Wilde never saw his young sons, Cyril and Merlin's father Vivian, after his conviction, and his wife Constance died not long after his release from prison. When Oscar was in prison, Constance did everything that she felt was right for him, but primarily for her boys, really. She took them abroad almost immediately because she didn't want them subject to this scandal. She changed the family name to Holland. And in the meantime, while she was abroad with them, she opened lines of communication back to Oscar. And for a long time, it looked like they were going to repair the marriage and she was going to stand by him. And when he came out of prison, they would be reconciled. But between one thing and another, it just never happened. Unfortunately, she contracted a dreadful illness, which has now been identified as multiple cirrhosis. And she died on the operating table of a private clinic in Genoa in Italy. Terribly young woman and her sons were left both motherless and fatherless. That's writer Eleanor Fitzsimons. Eleanor's recent biography of Wilde, Wilde's Women, gives new insight into his life, and particularly that of his family, whose world shattered when Wilde was convicted and imprisoned. They had such an awful, tragic experience, really, after their mother died. The man that she appointed as their guardian, effectively, was a third cousin of hers. He took no interest in them, but the one thing that he was determined to do, and he did very little for them, the one thing he was determined to do was to keep them away from their father, that their father would have no influence over them whatsoever, that they would never meet him again, they would never benefit financially from his works. And he worked tirelessly, really, to achieve that, with the, the collaboration and help of some other family members and friends as well. So they were kept away from their father, and in fact... They thought he was dead a couple of years before he was. Obviously, Oscar gets sent to prison. My father is sent abroad. He's joined by his mother. And uh, he and his brother then live for nearly three years abroad in Switzerland and Italy and Germany. So his mother was the one stable point in his whole life. And I think he... There's a sense in my mind that he resented his father's, inevitably resented his father's behaviour because he felt that it contributed to his mother's early death. They were very young at the time he was in prison, just young boys. They lived abroad for a time, they went to school abroad, boarding schools, very kind of rough and tumble boys' schools where they were expected to kind of toughen up and be stoic. They were desperately upset by the loss of their mother, obviously, and they only really learnt of their father's death through newspapers and second-hand sources. Cyril Holland became very much a macho man who got very involved in sport and he signed up for the army and he went off and he fought in the First World War and he was killed in the First World War. He was killed by a sniper. Friendship, the theme of the devoted friend, was core to Wilde's life. He cherished his friends and some like Robbie Ross, remained true to him in life and death. Vivian Holland fortunately managed to meet up with some of Oscar Wilde's closest friends, like Robbie Ross, and he was introduced in his early 20s to a whole world of appreciation and love for his father. And he was able then to reconnect with his father, I think, through his, his very close and true and sincere friends. While Oscar Wilde's life and career is marked, even defined by his imprisonment for being gay, 
it was his decision to charge the Marquis of Queensbury with libel that forced events. It was when the importance of being earnest was staged in 1895 that Lord Alfred Douglas's father, who was the Marquis of Queensbury, left a card at Wilde's club accusing him of posing as a somdomite. He couldn't spell it properly. That's Anne Markey. And Wilde sued the Marquis of Queensbury for libel. Now, this Marquis of Queensbury is the one who left us the rules for boxing. Now, why did he sue for libel? In some ways, was he like the remarkable Rocket, who was so convinced of his own importance that he thought that nothing could touch him. There seems to have been an element of truth in that suggestion that he did see himself as being above the law. And however perverse the law was, it was the law then. But he took the case for libel and the Marquis of Queensbury was acquitted and Wilde was immediately arrested. Well, he was talked into it to a large extent by Lord Alfred Douglas, who felt very affronted by his father treating him so appallingly badly as he saw it and interfering in his life. But I honestly don't think that he thought he would lose. He was quite naive, really. He believed that the case would be argued in terms of his writings and his literature. And, and certainly the, the very beginning of that libel case concentrated very much on Dorian Gray and on whether it was a suitable book. But what he hadn't realised was that the foe who he came up against was going to be so organised, was going to take witness statements, hire private investigators, build such a damaging case against him. And as soon as he lost that libel case, well, then he was sunk, really. And then he underwent a criminal prosecution. And the question is also asked why he didn't flee to France. A lot of his friends told him to leave, but he didn't leave and he was arrested in the Cadogan Hotel and was tried twice. There was a hung jury the first time, but by May 1895, he'd been sentenced to two years hard labour, which was the highest sentence that you could get. I suppose Oscar Wilde could conceivably have lived his life, as many others did at the time, quite happily had he not sued the Marquis of Queensbury for libel. The legislation under which he was prosecuted was quite recent. It had only been introduced 10 years previously. So there were mixed views in terms of how illegal, I suppose, or damaging his behaviour was. There were plenty of men who had similar inclinations and who led their lives in a reasonably open way, I suppose. But he was unfortunate in that I think he just came up against the wrong man. There are lots of conspiracy theories, some of them with a lot of evidence behind them to suggest that the authorities had an interest in silencing him as well and that that's why he ultimately ended up being imprisoned. Jane Wilde, Oscar's mother, died while Wilde was in prison. He was not allowed to attend her funeral and it was Constance who broke the news. Certainly WB Yeats said that Jane Wilde told Oscar if he fled, she would never speak to him again that he should stand his ground and he should clear his name. She felt very strongly about defending your honour and defending your name. He also, to be fair to him, didn't feel that he was doing anything wrong and he wasn't. So he felt that the law was ridiculous. And why should he temper his behaviour and subject himself to laws and rules and regulations that he didn't believe in? And he was right, as we see nowadays. But he paid a very heavy price. She was desperately unhappy when he was imprisoned. She never saw that as a consequence. And she was very much taken by surprise. 
when he was sentenced to two years with hard labour. She wasn't able to visit him. Her own health was failing very badly. And in fact, she petitioned the prison governors to allow him out, to, to release him on compassionate grounds, but he wasn't allowed. So she was just a broken woman. She was desperately unhappy and desperately sad. And it's funny, in fact, because we always think in terms of Oscar and her hopes for Oscar, and she really had such high hopes. She, she saw him as a genius, and she really thought that he could take over the world, do anything he wanted to. But she also had very high hopes for Willie, her older son. And he had a desperately sad life as well. He was a chronic alcoholic. He had a failed marriage. He was very unhappy in his own way. So both her sons, her absolutely adored, treasured, wonderful, intelligent sons, had lost their way. So his, his own biography has often been read as a kind of tragic tale he has this fatal flaw. Why bring a prosecution against Queensbury when Queensbury would have access to all the rent boys that Wilde was using? He would have been able to access these people quite easily. And Wilde had already been threatened with blackmail by one of them. Charlotte Killeen there. He must have known that he was leaving himself open. Now, it may be that Wilde was such an egomaniac that he thought that he, that he could perform so brilliantly within the court that he could escape and charm everyone. But he must have known that the evidence would have been mounting up against him quite easily. I think that he certainly liked to see himself as a person struggling against a giant of some form and that he was the underdog who would always come out on top. There was a sense there that it was possible to become heroic through taking on the law and beating it. Merlin Holland. Well, from the age of about 20 onwards, um, it was made clear to me that, you know, this will happen. You will be associated with Oscar Wilde. The best thing you can do, this is parental influence, I think, uh, just say yes and change the subject, keep your head down below the parapet. It's much the easiest way. Uh, and it wasn't until much later when I came back from abroad, I'd I started my first job abroad in the Middle East, came back after five years and found my mother struggling, poor thing, with uh, permissions to quote from Oscar's letters. So I thought anything I can really do is to be able to speak to these people who are, whether they're biographers or whether they're university professors, on their own level, I need to learn as much about it as they know in order to be able to speak to them on their own terms. I think in a sense I've felt slightly that I've made a rod for my own back by doing it. But on the other hand, you know, occasionally there are excesses. Um, he had such a sensational life without people making it even more sensational by inventing things. And once in a while I feel that he needs a little bit of family help. Um, I don't bang on the table very often. If you do it too much, people take no notice of you. And I never want to be thought of as a sort of tiresome literary residue. Um, people who are always being obstructive and protecting the reputation of their forebears. I think the only thing to do is to see where the truth lies and however painful it is to recognize it, but to insist that other people do very much the same thing. And of course, you know, biography is largely a matter of conjecture, but it has to be conjecture which is based on 
a reasonable balance of probabilities rather than um, some sort of tub-thumping uh, agenda which people have and which they want to put over. I think that's the great thing about biography. It's the gray areas which are so fascinating. And you can color them in, but if you make put too much detail in there and pretend that you really know what happened, I think it loses that uncertainty, which I think is the, the, the mark of great biography. Merlin Holland, Oscar Wilde's grandson. In our final episode, I'll be exploring perhaps the most beloved of all the wild stories, The Selfish Giant, with a reading by Brian Gleeson and the final piece of Michael Gallen's music. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. It was a lovely scene, only in one corner it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all around it, crying bitterly. We'll also get to hear Michael's full suite of music, all five pieces, performed and recorded by the RTE Concert Orchestra and RTE Corn and Oog, led by choral director Mary Amond O'Brien with soloists Rachel Croish and Evan Lawrence and conducted by Gavin Maloney. Our thanks to our commentators Anne Markey, Jarleth Killeen, Eleanor Fitzsimons and Merlin Holland for their help with the series. Wild Stories is an Athena Media production for RTE Lyric FM made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV licence fee. You can find out more about the project, hear podcasts, and see the wonderful artwork by visual artist Felicity Clear online on the project's website, wildstories.ie. We've also added the text of the story so you can read, listen, and enjoy this wild journey. And you can share your thoughts on Twitter and Facebook with the at wildstories accounts or use the hashtag wildstories. I'm Robert Sheehan. Thank you for listening. <laughs>